Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. My name is Pat Iyer, and I have the pleasure of bringing to you Erin LaFerrier, who is a legal nurse consultant. She is clinically active working in critical care units, and she's board certified as a critical care registered nurse. Erin became involved in a fascinating case, and she will describe her role to you in our podcast, what the case was about, and how it was resolved. There is a lot in the news lately about the subject of overdoses, particularly related to opioids. There's been a lot in the news, particularly because of a movie that was created called The Good Nurse, which is a book that came out about Charles Cullen. And it's a case that I worked on as a legal nurse consultant with one of the prosecutors. Aaron has a case that has threads that are similar to, but not identical to, the registered nurse Charles Cullen, who was convicted of killing patients in the hospital. Aaron, tell us a little bit about this case with Dr. Hussle and what it involved. Good morning, Pat. Thanks for having me. So... I got involved with the Mount Carmel Dr. Hussle litigation back in spring of 2020. Um, the cases are revolve around palliative care, palliative extubation, and the intensive care unit. So Dr. Hussle was an intensivist on the night shift, working with registered nurses to provide palliative extubation to patients that were not going to have meaningful recovery. And Dr. Hussle was ordering um, very large amounts of fentanyl, ranging from 500 to 2,000 micrograms IV push prior to pulling the breathing tube out. And that was being paired with other controlled substances, including Versed, which is a benzodiazepine, Dilaudid, which is another common narcotic, um, and those were large doses as well. And the nurses were overriding that out of the uh, automatic dispensing machine, um, bypassing pharmacy approval. Uh, I was involved in the civil side of this, um, but Dr. Hussel was criminally charged on 14 counts of murder. The nurses were um, charged civilly with negligence and reported to their respective boards of nursing in the state of Ohio. Mount Carmel themselves are the ones that reported the nursing staff to the board. That's a good question, Erin. As I think about this, the circumstances were that there was a decision to terminate life support on these patients. Is that right? That's correct. 
So the part of my brain that goes into the analysis mode, which is a rather highly developed part of my brain, I would have to say, says these were patients who were going to die anyway. Why did Dr. Husserl get criminally charged with the murder of these patients? So originally, there were 40 different patients that were identified that were affected by this procedure of high doses of narcotics and withdrawal. Um, some of these patients were reviewed by other physicians that deemed it was not true that they would have not survived had adequate care been given. Um, that was one factor. And then the principle of double effect is a large factor in end-of-life care. So it's important to provide comfort if that is your intent. And if that speeds along the process of death, there's no ethical implications. However, the doubt of the intent here was that these patients had pain scores of zero, um, utilizing the critical care pain observation tool. They had negative five RAS scores, which is the Richmond agitation city, and they were not responding to pain. Um, nursing is very aware that pain management, you start with the smallest doses, you titrate up to effect, you can always give more, but to be giving anywhere from, you know, 10 to 40 times the recommended dose of a drug that's typically given with an airway um, raised a lot of ethical implications in this case. And in your role as a critical care nurse, I'm sure you have been involved in situations where the family has made a decision for a do not resuscitate and they want the ventilator to be stopped. What would be a typical procedure if that happened in terms of medication administration, or would there be medication administered before the ventilation was discontinued? Sure. So I, I do this fairly routinely. It's part of the IC role. So we are always going to pre-medicate somebody for pain and air hunger before we take away life support. Um, things that I would consider is, is this patient already receiving pain medication. So an example would be, were they already on a fentanyl drip for a ventilator sedation? We don't want to abruptly take that away from them and then take their support away. So if somebody was on, say, 100 micrograms an hour of fentanyl, I might bolus them an additional 50 or 100 based on their assessment and then continue with that infusion when we withdraw care. Adjunct therapy to that might be a benzodiazepine for anxiety, um, and sometimes we also will give additional morphine. Now, a patient that's not on any sedation at all, we might start with something less, um, with less strength. So a morphine drip could be appropriate for those patients, but you need to look at your patient, assess their reaction to their environment, and then medicate in appropriate increments. And in your review of the materials in this case, did Dr. Husserl ever provide an explanation as to why 
he provided orders for doses that were so far out of the range of what you just described? So there was nothing objective in the medical records that gave insight to that. Um, I believe at his trial, he just stated that he was providing comfort care and that he felt those doses were appropriate. And I know that you looked at this as a legal nurse consultant. Can you tell us about what your role was related to this case? Sure. So I was retained initially as a nurse expert for critical care to opine on the standards of care and the behaviors of the nursing staff. So I was first given 13 sets of medical records. Um, I reviewed them each individually. I looked at each patient as an individual, and I focused in on the care that was being provided, um, care that should have been provided, nursing assessments, and then inclusive of the critical care pain observation tool leading up to this, the RAS score that we talked about, and then there's also something called a POS score, and that's for um, opiate over-sedation. Um, so I first looked at the medical records objectively. Then I was provided um, the policies from Mount Carmel, what kind of resources nursing had at disposal, which was LexiComp at the time. And that is a national database for drugs and drug administration. Um, I also took into consideration the manufactured um, instructions for both fentanyl, Versed, and Dilaudid. Um, we did a little bit of literature research on the principle of double effect that I spoke about earlier. Um, and then I was also provided testimony from all the nurses and a separate testimony that was through the State Board of Nursing and their disciplinary actions before I ultimately made a final opinion. Did you see depositions of any of the nurses in this case? Yes, I read all the deposition testimony for each nurse that was involved. And did any of them comment on questions that were raised in their minds about the dose that the doctor ordered for these patients who were involved in this case? So there were one or two nurses that questioned it in an informal manner. Um, the culture on the unit was, this is what Dr. Husserl does. And he has been described in testimony by these nurses as extremely approachable and charismatic and trustworthy, uh, always teaching them something. And they had a lot of trust in him. Um, there were some very, very inexperienced nurses that did not have maybe the foundation to in confidence to challenge a physician of his stature. Um, and then there were some very, very experienced nurses that just said, well, he ordered it, so that's okay. Can you comment for the person who's watching this podcast about how you evaluated this in terms of the standard of care for the nurses specifically? 
Okay. So one of the things I focused on for the nurses was the six rights of medication administration. And nurses need to be very aware of the fact that doctors can make mistakes. And although they put in the orders, it's not an absolute. It is the responsibility of the nurse to know what an appropriate dose is of a medication before they give it. They need to know what the side effects of that drug could be um, in, in order to safely administer it. Uh, nurses also need to be aware of that when you are medicating pain, you need to have an objective way to measure pain and treat appropriately. So if a physician puts in an order for 1,000 micrograms of fentanyl, a nurse is responsible to know that that is outside of a normal dose of fentanyl, and it should be questioned. I think about what we have seen in the news lately, the epidemic of deaths from opioids, the fact that fentanyl is being mixed in with heroin, with crack, being sold as Percodan or Percocet, and how deadly it is. You can't escape watching the news without seeing some story about the deadliness of fentanyl and the very large amounts of the United States population who are being wiped out by this drug. I know that you said this happened in 2020. Was that correct? So I became involved in 2020. Okay. The cases that were in question date back to 2017. So certainly not ancient history by our lifespans. And there was an awareness at that time of the risks. When you Absolutely, said the nurses yes. were, were giving this drug because he ordered it, it makes me wonder how it got that far. You mentioned, I thought, 40 cases and there were 13 that you were involved or 10 that you were involved in. So it wasn't like this was an isolated incident. This was a pattern that he was following. Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. How do word choices affect the power of your story? Have you ever given a speech and sensed that the audience members were restless and inattentive? That's the biggest nightmare people who speak publicly fear. And one of the best ways to prevent it is to fill your speech or writing with emotional power. I'll describe two ways to do this. My book, Powerful Storytelling in Business, How to Captivate Your Clients, contains many more. Number one, avoid cliches. Cliches are embedded in our patterns of casual speech. We can hardly even know we're saying or writing them. How many times have you heard or said, think outside the box. Even the pandemic favorite, an abundance of caution, has become virtually meaningless. Overused cliches constitute the dead zones of writing. The reader may skip over them, which will disrupt their reading rhythm. Too many cliches are boring and they trigger the restless delete finger. Number two, Use creative thinking. Charge up your unused brain cells. That's not a hugely creative phrase, 
but it's a significant improvement over think outside the box. How can you charge up your unused brain cells to deliver something much better? Point three, consider references and your audience. Scientists will respond to a reference to a well-known scientist. You can mention Plato or Aristotle to philosophers. You're never going to come up with a reference that everyone knows, but you're also not writing for everyone. Verify the accuracy of data, even if you think the details are so well known that of course they must be true. Be very careful never to say or write anything that makes your readers feel stupid. Given the tendency of people to project unpleasant sensations onto others, they may decide you're stupid. And then, goodbye audience. Getting and reading powerful storytelling in business, how to captivate your clients, can help you release that fear of being vulnerable and share your experiences. Get it at patire.com forward slash books. And I'm Pat Iyer, the author of the book we've just been talking about. Now let's return to the show. Correct. So this pattern of behavior spanned over about three years. And eventually, um, a newer pharmacist came in and identified that these were being overridden out of the machine, bypassing pharmacy, and that pharmacist took it up the chain of command. And that's how this all resurfaced um, after a couple of years. You know, it reminds me, Erin, of the story of the that we've been told as kids. And I hope you've been told this story as a kid about how you put a frog in simmering water and the frog gets used to the temperature and then it will eventually acclimate to that simmering water. And as it gets hotter, it, it will be boiled alive. If you drop a yes. frog into boiling water, supposedly it will hop right out. Although I have read that you will basically boil the frog to death if you do that. I shared this story with an attorney recently who had never heard the story. And he said, Pat, you had such a cruel childhood if you were boiling frogs. And I said, no, <laughs> I never did this myself. It's the analogy. You get used to something that's abnormal and it becomes the norm. We accept that that's the way Dr. Husserl medicates his patients. It must be okay if he's writing the orders we accept that we have to override the safety features of the drug cart in order to get out all those ampules of fentanyl in order to fulfill this order. Um, it's shocking when you look at it from the outside as we are right now, but it's not shocking if this is the way we do things. And there's all manner of evil that can occur in a healthcare environment where people learn how to go along with dysfunctional behavior and not question it. I mean, did you have any reaction like that as you were going through these records and looking at the drugs that were being ordered for this patient or patients? I think what shocked me the most when I looked at this 
is how repetitive it was. It just kept happening um, and it escalated and the amounts of drugs. I, I mean, I give fentanyl every day at work. It's a drug that we use every day. And I mean, I can honestly say I've never pushed more than 100 micrograms of fentanyl in one um, situation at one, one at a time because that's a very, very potent drug, strongest opiate that we have. And um, just the fact that this was so normalized in their environment, um, it makes me slightly empathetic to those novice nurses who were coming in as new graduates into an ICU, and they were being taught this by people that were supposed to be their mentors. Um, and and they paid the price. They were disciplined. And um, I, I tell nurses all the time, you know, at the end of the day, you're at, you're responsible for your actions. Um, you can't just blame it on, I had an order for it, if that order is inappropriate. So this is a really good example of um, maybe some toxic culture and um, nobody, nobody holding the physician accountable um, out of fear of retribution. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, Erin. Tell me about the fear of retribution and how that drives nurses' behavior. So nursing as a whole, we have self-reporting. Um, it's an internal system. Most hospitals have it that you are supposed to report errors or near misses, which is inclusive of medication errors. Um, without fear of being punished, um, to improve quality of patient care. Uh, we saw this last spring with the Rodonda Vought trial. She reported herself, and she found herself on the stand being criminally charged. Um, I think this opens a real slippery slope. Nurses are not going to report medical errors if they're going to be um, punished for it, whether it's their mistake or somebody else's mistake. That, that fear of losing your license, your livelihood, your passion, your profession is a very um, real fear. And it's becoming more common in, in the post-pandemic era. In 1987, I worked for a year as a nursing quality assurance coordinator. And I sat on the pharmacy and therapeutics committee and they went over every medication error that it took place in a 600 bed hospital. My director of nursing told me that if a nurse reported three medication errors, she would lose her license or she would lose her job. She would lose her job. And the hospital in one month had five incident reports describing medication errors. And I looked at the pharmacist and the director of nursing and said, our nurses are not reporting errors. There cannot be five errors in a 600-bed hospital in one month and have an accurate reporting system. And they said, oh, no, they'll report errors. I said, they lose their job if they report three of them. So why should they report them? And eventually they understood and it, they accepted what I was saying. But it took a while for that to penetrate their thought processes that this was well before the concept of just 
culture and the fact that we don't punish people for reporting errors. But in this case, um, Rhonda, Rhonda got caught up in this terrible situation and the nurses that you're describing at Mount Carmel got caught up in this terrible situation. Tell us what happened. Now that we've talked about why he did it, how he did it, how the nurses followed orders. You mentioned a criminal trial. What was the outcome of that trial? So Dr. Hussle's trial took place last spring of 2020, actually about a month after the Redonda Vought trial. And he was criminally acquitted on all 14 charges because the jury in that jurisdiction made a public statement that um, they didn't see the intent, the intent to hurt these patients, that his intentions were to provide comfort care. Um, the nurses had already been disciplined by the Board of Nursing, inclusive of license suspension. Um, some of them were given the opportunity in three years' time to remediate and potentially get their license back. Um, Dr. Hussle has surrendered his license in the wake of his trial. And Mount Carmel has revamped all their policies and procedures surrounding these medications, palliative extubation, nursing assessments, pain and sedation assessments. Um, and then eventually Mount Carmel um, settled with the 10 pending families left that had civil suits on behalf of nursing, pharmacy, and Dr. Hussle. And tell us about the basis of those civil suits, what they were critical of. So a lot of these particular cases that got narrowed down, so the 10 that were left over, um, a lot of them, care was pulled in less than 24 hours. There were certain measures that weren't done before that decision. A couple of the families felt they were bullied into withdrawing care and they weren't quite ready, um, that they had less time with their loved one, that had those medications not been given, would they have potentially breathed on their own after extubation for a period of time? Um, some of these patients were extremely young. So, you know, we're talking about patients as young as in their 30s, ranging up to their 80s. So there were, it wasn't just one factor. I think each individual case um, had a few dimensions of family complaints. And in the Charles Cullen case, initially Cullen was selecting people in critical care units who had terrible prognoses and he was pushing them over the threshold into death. Um, but he got sloppy after a while and started killing people who were getting ready for discharge, people who were recovering. I and the suits in that case, the civil suits against the hospitals were on their failure to detect what he was doing, their failure to give an accurate reference to the next hospital that wanted to hire Charles. They pushed the problem to another hospital down the road or across the border into Pennsylvania from New Jersey. 
in this case, you're describing the suits being on behalf of the nurses, the pharmacists, and Dr. Fusel. Uh, we haven't mentioned the pharmacy role yet in this. What was the, the allegation against the pharmacists at Mount Carmel? So pharmacy was being bypassed because nursing was overriding the medications from the automatic dispensary. However, pharmacists are responsible for counting and tracking controlled substances, restocking this, and um, they get an alert when that is empty. So if a nurse pulls out 10 or 20 vials of fentanyl, the first question is, why is that much being stocked in one pocket? So mm -hmm. that was a that was one of the issues that came up for pharmacy. Um, they had two machines, so they were emptying out both machines. And failure for pharmacy to identify that nursing was pulling this much medication out at once um, and then not reporting it. A couple of the pharmacists had testified, well, it was too late for me to do anything about it. The meds had already been given. Um, we just click a button to clear it off our screen. However, every time you click something in an electronic program, it tracks your username. And that's how these particular pharmacists were identified, linked to the nights and times that uh, these palliative withdrawals occurred. Do you know if there was any action against the licenses of the pharmacists? I do know that the pharmacists were reported to the State Board of Pharmacy. However, I was not provided their results from that, just the results of the nursing disciplinary action. And then you said for the nurses that there were license suspensions for as long as three years? Yes, so all of them received a minimum of a three-year suspension. Um, and then each case was looked at individually. Uh, unfortunately, there were nurses that were involved in multiple palliative extubations with very similar patterns that we've been discussing. That's all part of this tragedy, isn't it, Erin? That there were nurses who were new graduates who didn't necessarily have the experience to see this as an enormous overdose. And there were experienced nurses who thought that Dr. Hussle knew what he was doing and they went along with those orders because he had written those orders. And, and yet I can't help but wonder if there were nurses who said, and they may not have showed up in your investigation, but you know, who said, absolutely, don't assign me to any patient that he's involved in because I don't want to put my license on the line. I'm not giving that much fentanyl. I don't know if there were people like that or if everyone who was put in that situation did what he requested. So from the records that I looked at, there were a lot of overlapping of the same nurse Um the only person that really raised any question was the one pharmacist where everything kind of started to evolve at that point. 
Um, but, you know, this was a full-blown systems failure. Uh, the nurse was the last stop point to it. But, you know, the ability to pull out that much medication, uh, bypassing pharmacy, especially with the sophistication of electronic medical records today, um, you know, there there were opportunities for hard stops and it, it just didn't happen. Systems failures, inexperience, the the frog in the boiling water who gets used to the dysfunctional environment, you know, all of that contributed to this tragedy. A absolutely. Um, but I, I still hold firm today after everything I looked at, you know, medication administration, regardless of what area of nursing you're in, is, is a primary and essential role as a nurse. Um, and we need to teach this younger cohort of nurses that it's okay to speak up when something's inappropriate. Um, I've refused to give fentanyl in my career, and I've had some pretty angry docs about it. And um, I told them that they can give it because it's not within my scope to be doing that. And that comes with experience. That comes with confidence. That comes with being in the role for a period of time. You don't come out of nursing school with that mentality. And we need to start teaching that to our younger generation of nurses. Yeah, that's well put, Erin. And we're talking about a, a principle that can affect your analysis of all kinds of cases in many environments. People become used to dysfunction. They become used to things that are dangerous, that jeopardize yes. patient safety. And that's the real risk that we're talking about. If you remember the book, um, was George Orwell, 1984, talked about groupthink, right? Well, the groupthink yes. is that this is the way that we do it. And obviously, it's got to be right because that's the way that we do it. And when that mentality sets hold, then it becomes so normalized. Um, I'm thinking about a case that I was involved in that you would appreciate as a critical care nurse of patients who were in a nursing home and they had trachs in. They were not attached to ventilators, but they had trach tubes. And they had a woman who kept repetitively pulling on her trach, so they were wanting to, res to restrain her arms. They had, in that situation, that patient was able to pull her trach tube out and she was found dead. And then about six months later, they had another situation in the same nursing home with a patient who was pulling on her trach tube. And they were looking for wrist restraints. They couldn't find any. So they took um, a sanitary napkin and some gauze and created their homemade wrist restraint, which did absolutely no good. Patient got out of it, pulled her trach out <sighs> and died. It was in the newspaper, then there was an investigation, and the family of the first woman who died, who had been told she peacefully died in her sleep, suddenly realized, reading the circumstances in the paper, it said this facility had two such self-extubations, and one had been at 
five o'clock in the morning on February 1st. And the family of the first one said, oh, wait a minute, grandma died in that facility on February 1st at five o'clock. Maybe they're talking about her. When the, the nursing home realized the implications of this pattern, the director of nursing instructed all of the nurses to rewrite their nurses notes. And they all did, except for one person who said, wait a minute, it's not right that you're telling me what to put in my nurse's notes because you're asking me to write something that didn't happen. And she kept the original copy of her nurse's notes, which included other people's notes. There was an investigation. I saw both sets of nurse's notes. They, there was one that was written with the unvarnished truth. And then there was another one that was just shaded a little bit by each person to make it look like they were um, using the appropriate types of wrist restraints and that they were observing her more frequently than they did. The nurses who were asked to write their nurses notes, some of them were crying, some of them were vomiting in the bathroom, they were so <laughs> upset. But it was a travel nurse who said, no, I'm not doing this. Talk to the owner of the nursing home, inform that person, and then that all came out in the investigation. That, that is one example of what comes to my mind when I think about what you're describing with Dr. Husserl of a, an environment where it was normalized to do something that on the surface you would say, oh, wait a minute, 2,000 micrograms of fentanyl? No. I mean, how can I give that? You know, you telling that story, Pat, brings up another theme that was in these Mount Carmel cases and you talk about nurses being asked to essentially falsify their nurses' notes. Um, one of the things I looked for was pain scores that would correlate with these doses. And the nurses testified that they just picked a number between 8 and 10 to justify giving these doses of fentanyl. Now, other IC nurses out there that are familiar with the uh, critical care pain observation tool, you cannot score over an eight on that score. It, it's a high score of an eight. Um, and you have to respond to pain in order to score because it, it looks at um, your facial expression, your tolerance with the ventilator, your uh, muscle rigidity and your restlessness and protection. And if you are completely unresponsive, you're going to score a zero on that, which is what these patients were. Their neuro exams were, does not respond to pain, unresponsive. And then all of a sudden, this pain score between an 8 and a 10 pops up. So first of all, you can't score a 10. And, and second of all, how do you score an 8 on the CPOT if you can't move to painful stimuli? And... um. I found that very disheartening that nurses were being taught essentially to put in fake documentation to justify their actions. Um, very similar to the hindsight story that you just told, change your nurse's note to fit our narrative. Um, no nurse should be put in that position. Yes, indeed. 
Well, Aaron, I know that we have stimulated interest in your story, in you. How can our listener who's watching this on our YouTube channel, Legal Nurse Business, or listening to it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any of our other platforms, how can they find out more about you and the services you offer? Um, absolutely. So you can find me on LinkedIn or Facebook. Um, my Facebook page is EL Nurse Consulting. Um, LinkedIn, it's just under my, my name, Erin LaFarrier. And I also have a webpage, elnurseconsulting.com. Um, and you can reach out to me by email or phone. The contact information is on all those sites. Thank you, Erin. And would you spell your last name for somebody who is listening to this? Sure. It's L-A-F-E-R-R-I-E-R-E. And Erin's first name is spelled E-R-I-N. Thank you, Erin. You've been extraordinarily helpful in helping us understand the critical care environment in which this series of actions of Dr. Husserl and the critical care nurses led to these results. Uh, the surprising acquittal of his case, at least in terms of the criminal conviction, but the civil consequences resulting in settlements and the surrendering of his license as the ultimate act of our hope that he won't ever get involved in this type of behavior again. Yes. Thank you for having me, Pat. Thank you so much. And for you who's watching this program, be sure to stay tuned for a description of the next program that's coming up on Legal Nurse Podcast. As soon as Aaron and I finish talking, you will see what's up and what's available for you in our next episode. Be sure to give a like or leave a comment if you're watching this on our YouTube channel, Legal Nurse Business, and be sure to come back for our next podcast. Also, we'd love it if you would give a rating for the show on the platform that you're using. Thanks so much. Hey, coming up next on Legal Nurse Podcast, you'll have an opportunity to meet Emily Flynn, who is an experienced legal nurse consultant who has deep experience in emergency department nursing expert work in that field, and more recently focusing on helping attorneys get a handle on sometimes voluminous medical records by preparing chronologies. Our focus in this podcast was on many nuances associated with doing a chronology. Emily, can you give our listener a little taste of some of the topics that we covered in your podcast? Yes. So we discussed what software I use when writing the chronologies, what different kinds of chronologies there are, how I start the personal injury or, or different types of chronologies when we have so many medical records. What do I do when I find that medical records are missing? Why is it important to know what the client's preferences are? How do I organize the medical records? And uh, what are some of the shortcuts that I use when I use these prepare my chronologies? How do I draw attention to significant information? 
Do I include personal opinions with the chronologies? And how do I update chronologies when I'm given new records? And all of that in 30 minutes. (laughs) You won't want to miss Emily's program, particularly if chronologies are not something that you do often or haven't done a lot of. If you pay attention to what she advises, you'll learn concrete tips that will make preparing chronologies smoother and easier and more profitable for you and your client. Be sure to come back to Legal Nurse Podcast and catch Emily Flynn's podcast on chronologies. I'll see you there. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.